Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The House of Shadows by Mary Elizabeth Councilman The train pulled up with a noisy jerk and wheeze, and I peered out into the semi-gloom of dusk at the little depot. What was the place? Oak Grove. I could read dimly the sign on the station's roof. I sighed wearily. Three days on the train. Lord, I was tired of the lurching roll, the cinders, the scenery flying past my window. I came to a sudden decision and hurried down the aisle to where the conductor was helping an old lady off. How long do we stop here? I asked him quickly. About ten minutes, ma'am, he said and I stepped from the train to the smooth sand in front of the station. So pleasant to walk on firm ground again. I breathed deeply of the spicy winter air and strolled to the far side of the station. A brisk little wind was whipping my skirts about my legs and blowing wisps of hair into my eyes. I looked idly about at what I could see of Oak Grove. It was a typical small town, a little sleepier than some, a little prettier than most. I wandered a block or two toward the business district, glancing nervously at my watch from time to time. My ten minutes threatened to be up when I came upon two dogs trying to tear a small kitten to pieces. I dived into the fray and rescued the kitten, not without a few bites and scratches in the way of service wounds, and put the little animal inside a store doorway. At that moment, a long-drawn, it seemed to me derisive, whistle from my train rent the quiet, and as I tore back toward the station, I heard it chugging away. I reached the tracks just in time to see the caboose rattling away into the night. What should I do? Oh, why had I jumped off at this accursed little station? My luggage, everything I possessed except my purse, was on that vanished train, and here I was, marooned in a village I had never heard of before. Or had I? Oak Grove. The name had a familiar ring. Oak Grove. Ah, I had it. My roommate at college two years before had lived in a town called Oak Grove. I darted into the depot. Does a Miss Mary Allison live here? I inquired of the station master. Mary Dean Allison? I wondered at the peculiar, unfathomable look the old man gave me, and at his long silence before he answered my question. Yes'm, he said slowly, with an odd hesitancy that was very noticeable. You her kin? No, I smiled. I went to college with her. I... I thought perhaps she might put me up for the night. I've... well, I was idiot enough to let my train go off and leave me. Do you... Is she fixed to put up an unexpected guest, do you know? Well, again, that odd hesitancy. We've a fair to Midland Hotel here, he evaded. Maybe you'd rather stay there. I frowned. Perhaps my old friend had incurred the disapproval of Oak Grove by indiscreet behaviour. It seems a very easy thing to do in rural towns. I looked at him coldly. Perhaps you can direct me to her house. I said stiffly. He did so, still with that strange reluctance. 
I made my way to the big white house at the far end of town, where I was told Mary Allison lived. Vague memories flitted through my mind of my chum as I had seen her last. A vivacious, cheerful girl, whose home and family life meant more to her than college. I recalled hazy pictures she had given me of her house, of her parents, and a brother whose picture had been on our dresser at school. I found myself hurrying forward with eagerness to see her again, and meet that doting family of hers. I found my way at last to the place, a beautiful old colonial mansion with tall pillars. The grounds were overgrown with shrubbery and weeds, and the enormous white oaks completely screened the great house from the street, giving it an appearance of hiding from the world. The place was sadly in need of repairs, and a gardener's care, but it must have been magnificent at one time. I mounted the steps, and rapped with the heavy brass knocker. At my third knock, the massive door swung open a little way, and my college friend stood in the aperture, staring at me without a word. I held out my hand, smiling delightedly, and she took it in a slow, incredulous grasp. She was unchanged, I noticed, except, perhaps, that her dancing bright blue eyes had taken on a vague, dreamy look. There was an unnatural quiet about her manner, too, which was not noticeable until she spoke. She stood in the doorway, staring at me with those misty blue eyes for a long moment without speech. Then she said slowly, with more amazement than I thought natural, Liz! Liz! Her fingers tightened about my hand, as though she were afraid I might suddenly vanish. It's... it's good to see you. Gosh! How... why did you come here? with a queer embarrassment. Well, to tell the truth, my train ran off and left me when I got off for a breath of air, I confessed sheepishly. But I'm glad now that it did. Remembered you lived here, so here I am. She merely stared at me strangely, still clutching my hand. There's no train to Atlanta till ten in the morning. I hesitated, then laughed. Well... Aren't you going to ask me in? Why, why, of course, Mary said oddly, as if the idea was strange and had not occurred to her. Come in. I stepped into the great hall, wondering at her queer manner. She had been one of my best friends at college. So why this odd constraint? Not quite as if she did not want me around, more as if it were queer that I should wish to enter her house as if I were a total stranger, a creature from another planet. I tried to attribute it to the unexpectedness of my visit, yet, inwardly, I felt this explanation was not sufficient. What a beautiful old place, I exclaimed, with an effort to put her at ease again. Then, as the complete silence of the place struck me, unthinkingly, I added, You don't live here alone, do you? She gave me the oddest look, one I could not fathom, and replied so softly that I could hardly catch the words. Oh, no. I laughed. Of course, I'm crazy, but where is everybody? I took off my hat, looking about me at the colonial furniture and the large candelabra on the walls with the clusters of lighted candles 
which gave the only light in the place, for there were no modern lighting fixtures of any kind, I noted. The dim candlelight threw deep shadows about the hall, shadows that flickered and moved, that seemed alive. It should have given me a sense of nervous fear, yet somehow there was peace, contentment, warmth about the old mansion. Yet, too, there was an incongruous air of mystery, of unseen things in the shadowy corners, of being watched by unseen eyes. "'Where is everybody? Gone to bed?' I repeated, as she seemed not to have heard my question. "'Here they are,' Mary answered in that strange, hushed voice I had noticed, as if someone were asleep whom she might waken. I looked in the direction she indicated, and started slightly. I had not seen that little group when I entered. They were standing scarcely ten feet from me, just beyond the aura of light from the candles, and they stared at me silently, huddled together and motionless. I smiled and glanced at Mary, who said in a soft voice, like the murmur of a light wind, My mother. I stepped forward and held out my hand to the tall, kind-faced woman who advanced a few steps from the half-seen group in the shadows. She seemed, without offence, not to see my hand, but merely gave me a beautiful smile and said, in that same hushed voice Mary used, If you are my daughter's friend, you are welcome. I happened to glance at Mary from the corner of my eye as she spoke, and I saw my friend's unnatural constraint vanish, give place to a look, I thought, wonderingly, that was unmistakably one of relief. My father... Mary's voice had a peculiar tone of happiness. A tall, distinguished-looking man of about forty stepped toward me, smiling gently. He too seemed not to see my outthrust hand, but said, in a quiet, friendly voice, "'I am glad to know you, my dear. Mary has spoken of you often.' I made some friendly answer to the old couple. Then Mary said, "'This is Lonnie. Remember his picture?' The handsome young man, whose photograph I remembered, stepped forward, grinning engagingly. "'So this is Liz,' he said. "'Always wanted to meet one girl who isn't afraid of a mouse. Remember? Mary told us about the time you put one in the prof's desk.' He too spoke in that near whisper that went oddly with his cheery words, and I found myself unconsciously lowering my voice to match theirs.' They were unusually quiet for such a merry, friendly group, and I was especially puzzled at Mary's hushed voice and manner. She had always been a boisterous, tomboy sort of person. This is Betty, Mary spoke again, a strange glow lighting her face. A small girl, about twelve, stepped solemnly from the shadows and gave me a grave, old-fashioned curtsy. And Bill, said Mary, as a chubby child peeped out at me from behind his sister's dress and broke into a soft, gurgling laugh. "'What darling kids!' I burst out. The baby toddled out from behind Betty and stood looking at me with big blue eyes, head on one side. I stepped forward to pat the curly head, but as I put out a hand to touch him, he seemed to draw away easily just out of reach— I could not feel rebuffed, however, 
with his bright eyes telling me plainly that I was liked. It was just a baby's natural shyness with strangers, I told myself, and made no other attempt to catch him. After a moment's conversation, during which my liking for this charming family grew, Mary asked if I should like to go to my room and freshen up a bit before dinner. As I followed her up the stairs, it struck me forcibly, as it had before only vaguely, that this family, with the exception of Mary, were in very bad health. From father to baby, they were most pasty white of complexion. Not sallow, I mused, but a sort of translucent white, like the glazed glass doors of private offices. I attributed it to the uncertain light of the candles that they looked rather smoky, like figures in a movie when the film has become old and faded. Dinner at six, Mary told me, smiling, and left me to remove the travel stains. I came downstairs a little before the dinner hour to find the hall deserted, and I stopped to parade before a large cheval glass in the wall. It was a huge mirror, reflecting the whole hall behind me, mellowly illumined in the glow of the candles. Turning about for a back view of myself, I saw the little baby, Bill, standing just beside me, big eyes twinkling merrily. Hello there, old fellow, I smiled at him. Do I look all right? I glanced back at the mirror, and what it reflected gave me a shock. I could see myself clearly in the big glass, and most of the hall far behind me, stretching back into the shadows. But the baby was not reflected in the glass at all. I moved, with a little chill just behind him, and I could see my own reflection clearly, but it was as if he was simply not there. At that moment, Mary called us to dinner, and I promptly forgot the disturbing optical illusion with the parting resolve to have my eyes examined. I held out my hand to lead little Bill into the dining room, but he dodged by me with a mischievous gurgle of laughter and toddled into the room ahead of me. That was the pleasantest meal I can remember. The food was excellent, and the conversation cheery and light, though I had to strain to catch words spoken at the far end of the table, as they still spoke in that queer, hushed tone. My voice, breaking into the murmur of theirs, sounded loud and discordant, though I have a real southern voice. Mary served the dinner, hopping up and running back into the kitchen from time to time to fetch things. By this, I gathered that they were in rather straitened circumstances and could not afford a servant. I chattered gaily to Lonnie and Mary, while the baby and Betty listened with obvious delight and Mary's parents put in a word occasionally when they could break into our chatter. It was a merry, informal dinner, not unusual, except that the conversation was carried on in that near whisper. I noticed, vaguely, that Mary and I were the only ones who ate anything at all. The others merely toyed with their food, cutting it up ready for eating, but not tasting a bite, though several times they would raise a fork to their lips and put it down again, as though pretending to eat. Even the baby only splashed with his little fork in his rice, and kept his eyes fixed on me, now and then breaking into that merry gurgling laugh. We wandered into the library after the meal, 
where Mary and I chatted of old times. Mr. Allison and his wife read, or gave ear to our prattling from time to time, smiling and winking at each other. Lonnie, with the baby in his lap, and Betty perched on the arm of his chair, laughed with us at some foolish tale of our freshman days. At about eleven, Mary caught me yawning covertly, and hustled me off to bed. I obediently retired, thankful for a bed that did not roll me from side to side all night, and crawled in bed in borrowed pyjamas, with a book to read myself to sleep by the flickering candle on my bedside table. I must have dropped off to sleep suddenly, for I awoke to find my candle still burning. I was about to blow it out and go back to sleep, when a slight sound startled the last trace of drowsiness from me. It was the gentle rattle of my doorknob being turned very quietly. An impulse made me feign sleep, though my eyes were not quite closed, and I watched the door through my eyelashes. It swung open slowly, and Mrs. Allison came into the room. She walked with absolute noiselessness up to my bed, and stood looking down at me intently. I shut my eyes tightly, so my eyelids would not flutter, and when I opened them slightly in a moment, she was moving toward the door, apparently satisfied that I was fast asleep. I thought she was going out again, but she paused at the door and beckoned to someone outside in the hall. Slowly, and with incredible lack of sound, there tiptoed into my room, Mr. Allison, Lonnie, Betty, and the baby. They stood beside the bed, looking down at me, with such tender expressions that I was touched. I conquered an impulse to open my eyes and ask them what they meant by this late visit, deciding to wait and watch. It did not occur to me to be frightened at this midnight intrusion. There swept over me instead a sense of unutterable peace and safety, a feeling of being watched over and guarded by some benevolent angel. They stood for a long moment without speaking, and then the little girl, bending close to me, gently caressed my hand, which was lying on the coverlet. I controlled a start with great effort. Her little hand was icy cold, not with the coldness of hands, but with a peculiar windy coldness. It was as if someone had merely blown a breath of icy air on me, for though her hand rested a moment on mine, it had no weight. Then, still without speaking, but with gentle, affectionate smiles on all their faces, they tiptoed out in single file. Wondering at their actions, I dropped off at last into a serene sleep. Mary brought my breakfast to my bed next morning and sat chattering with me while I ate. I dressed leisurely and made ready to catch my ten o'clock train. When the time drew near, I asked Mary where her family was. They were nowhere in the house and I'd seen none of them since the night before. I reiterated how charming they were and how happy my visit had been. That little glow of happiness lighted my friend's face again but at my next words, it vanished into one that was certainly frightened, pleading. I had merely asked to tell them goodbye. That odd, unfathomable expression 
flitted across her face once more. They... they're gone, she said in a strained whisper. And as I stared at her perplexedly, she added in confusion, I... I mean, they're away. They won't be back until... nightfall. The last word was so low, it was almost unintelligible. So I told her to give them my thanks and farewells. She did not seem to want to accompany me to the train, so I went alone. My train was late, and I wandered to the ticket window and chatted with the station master. Miss Allison has a charming family, hasn't she? I began conversationally. They seem so devoted to each other. Then I saw the station master was staring at me as if I had suddenly gone mad. His wrinkled face had gone very pale. You stayed there last night? His voice was almost a croak. Why, yes, I replied, wondering at his behaviour. I did. Why not? And you saw... them? His voice sank to a whisper. You mean Mary's family? I asked, becoming a little annoyed at his foolish perturbation. Certainly I saw them. What's so strange about that? What's wrong with them? My approaching train wailed in the distance, but I lingered to hear his reply. It came with that same reluctance, that same hesitancy, after a long moment. They died last year, he whispered, leaning forward toward me and fixing me with wide, intent eyes. Wiped out, every one of them, except in Mary, by smallpox. Mm-hmm.